Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, James Rogers, and I'm on the move again today. I'm in New York, and I'm off to the United Nations headquarters to brief on the transnational threat of terrorist drones. If you're interested in that topic, follow along on Instagram at James Rogers History or on Twitter at DR James Rogers. But I wanted to take a moment to introduce you to this incredible episode on a history that I knew nothing about. It concerns Britain's last line of defence had Hitler successfully launched Operation Sea Line, that invasion of the UK, in 1940 or 41. What were the plans to keep the Nazis at bay to disrupt their plans? Well, much like with the French Resistance, who were backed by the British Special Operations Executive, the famous SOE, Britain had prepared its own incredible network of brave civilian saboteurs, spies and assassins, many of whom went to their grave without revealing a word of what they had been tasked to do. To take us through this remarkable history, we welcome Andrew Chatterton onto the podcast. Andrew is the author of a new book, Britain's Secret Defences, Civilian Saboteurs, Spies and Assassins During the Second World War, and this is published by Casemate Publishing. This makes Andrew the ideal, the perfect person to take us through this deliberately hidden history. Enjoy. Hi, Andrew. Welcome to Warfare. How are you doing? Yeah, brilliant. Thank you very much. We've learned a lot about the Home Guard, I suppose, as they're still kind of called on this podcast. In fact, I've been doing this podcast long enough now to know that it isn't all about your pikes and your mannerings and your phrases. It's far more than that. These aren't a, a bumbling bunch of, of oldies and veterans who are this lingering last line of defence for Britain during the Second World War. In fact, so many of them were highly trained. We had a whole episode on the auxiliaries on this podcast and their legacies, and it was truly fascinating. So when you approached me and said, well, I've got a bit more to this story, well, we had to get you on the podcast, Andrew. It's a really interesting story, isn't it? That I think people have understandably brought into a narrative of pitchforks on cliff edges and old doddery men being our last line of defence in Britain during the Second World War. And, you know, as much as I love Dad's army, that certainly has helped add to that narrative. And it's all around that narrative of kind of Britain alone, keep calm and carry it, all that stuff. And we've taken a certain pride in, in that narrative in terms of amateurish approach that we had to defence, attacking panzers with pitchforks. But in actual fact... It's rubbish because by the kind of end of 1940, 
as you said, you, you had a great episode on the auxiliary units. There were 6,000 potentially auxiliary unit men, highly trained saboteurs and guerrillas the length of the country, ready to take on the invading German army. And what I've come here to talk to you about today is an entirely different group of civilians, a very different group of civilians, who were around 4,000 strong by, by the end of 1940, who were there to do a very specific job, to do, had a very similar life expectancy to the auxiliary units, but it had a very, very different role. And as you said, that's the, the special duties branch. And yeah, it's an absolutely fascinating story. All right, Andrew. Well, you tempted me with saying that it's all about all things secret and ruthless civilian defences in Britain. So uh, so don't hold back. Let's get into this. Yeah, great. So like the auxiliary units, the special duties branch started off with SIX, uh, so MI6. So they created an organisation called Section D in about 1938, and it was designed to find alternative ways of fighting an enemy. And there were two arms to Section D. There was a, uh, a sabotage and guerrilla arm, which is where the auxiliary units came from. And there was an information gathering arm, which is where the special duties branch came from. And the information gathering arm is obviously much more in line with the, with the role that MI6 has. And there was a chap in charge, or two chaps in charge, really, a guy called Lawrence Grand and another chap called Viscount Bearstead. And in the late, third, well, they founded in 38, so 38, 39, they were going to the country surrounding Nazi Germany and advising them on how they can start resistance forces ahead of invasion in terms of information gathering. And also, Section D was all about black propaganda as well, so helping them to, to place you know, what we'd call now fake news in things like that. But obviously, very quickly, it became apparent that it wasn't those countries surrounding Nazi Germany that needed this kind of uh, organisation in place, but Britain itself. So Grand and, and Bestead came back to the UK and they founded a group called the Home Defence Scheme, HDS which was the prototype of basically what they'd been teaching these European countries all a bit too late, but in Britain. And again, there were two arms, a sabotage arm and an information gathering arm. And as you probably talked about the auxiliary unit episode, the home defense key sabotage, Lawrence Graham was going around and mining bridges without telling anyone, giving caches of weapons to civilians without really training them how to use it. It was utter carnage. But the information gathering side, which is obviously much more, as I said, much more in line with what MI6 is all about, was a bit more organised. And they went round to very similar counties to where the auxiliary units were first founded. So kind of on that east coast, southeast corner, south coast and, and southwest. And they sent intelligence officers, rather like the, the auxiliary units did, and they went to key towns in these vulnerable counties, to key, ta- key towns and villages to find key men, as they called them. And it was men at this stage, chaps with a kind of prominent position within a town or a village. So like a vicar or a GP or a vet or even like a head ARP warden or observer corps official. And they gave these key men then a free reign to recruit their own kind of spy cells. And they all signed official sequence acts. And as a result, the kind of people they recruited within their cells were kind of family members and colleagues and trusted people that they knew they could trust. And they were recruiting two different types of people, spies. They're called spies or observers. I think observer is probably a better way of looking at it. They would observe the German army coming through, write down what they'd seen, and then pass it via uh, dead letter drops, via runners, to get back eventually to, to local command or GHQ. Now, by the end of June 1940, they'd recruited about 1,000 people, uh, 1,000 civilians into this organisation, which is a fantastic effort in a, in a month, really, that they had to do this. Everyone, as I said, signed the official secret acts. However, by July, GHQ, Home Forces, and General Ironside had got wind of what Lawrence Grand was up to 
in terms of, particularly in terms of the explosives, giving them to civilians without telling them really how to use them and leaving caches of weapons everywhere. No one knew where these caches of weapons were. Ironsiders hit the roots by all accounts. So very quickly, the sabotage wing was, was brought in with the group that Peter Fleming was starting under military intelligence research to form the auxiliary units. And the intelligence gathering side was, was brought into the to military as well. And that changed their role from a, under HDS, they were there for however long they could survive. But under the military, they were there very specifically for an anti-invasion role. So a very short amount of time. Let's say we've got these rolling tanks moving through these panzers, these tigers. Well, if you wanted to bring tigers over, they're pretty big fuel guzzlers. But, you know, let's imagine this invasion force pushing through. How long were they meant to last? Well, under HDS, for as long as possible. And under GHQ, under military, it was much more recognised that this was going to be a suicide mission. This was going to be two to three weeks max. And actually, we'll go into it later. This isn't like the French resistance or the SOE operatives in occupied Europe, where they had a wireless set which they could move around quickly. These civilian wireless operators, which we'll talk about in a bit, were in a very set location. You couldn't move from that location. The ATS girls, which we'll talk about later, were in a very set location. Once the Germans had tracked down your signal, you were done. Right. So a really, really short amount of time. So you had like a preset communications hub in a, a certain vital area that then would have been, you know, probably didn't know about the other communications hub nearby, but all of these would be somewhat interlinked, although without probably knowing each other are there, so that they can create some sort of crosshatch across the region and report on enemy movements back to the military so that as they're trying to absorb this initial invasion and get ready for a counterattack, they've got that really, really vital intelligence that they need to position themselves perfectly to try and push the Germans back. That's exactly it. That is bang on. Well, before we get into that bit, I need to know more about the fact that a load of explosives and a load of guns and munitions were handed over to a bunch of civilians down on the south coast. Now, did we get all those guns back? Are we likely to find loads of secret caches in the future? Were there any mishaps or mistakes? Yes. Yeah, so this was obviously under the bit that went to the auxiliary units. And the whole reason why Ironside was so apoplectic was that no one knew where these caches of weapons and explosives were. And only Grand did. And, and, you know, Grand and his team had buried so many. They were called, rather confusingly, they were called the boxes they came in and buried in were rather confusingly called orcs units. But they'd buried so many that they didn't know where they were. And there's a, in the archives, there's a report from MI5, so MI6's brother, who obviously MI5 is a, you know, that's where they operate. They were not only annoyed that MI6 were already operating in the UK about their knowledge, but when they found out these guys were giving caches of weapons to civilians and the MI5 report said, we don't know where they are. The police don't know where they are. The military don't know where they are. And it seems like HDS operatives have forgotten where they are. So sometimes, you know, you see on the news here that a group of 24 phosphorus bombs have been found. Probably Home Guard, but very probably it's something to do with HDS, and especially if it's in the South or the East. So yeah, these caches of weapons and explosives are still being found. You know, even with the auxiliary units that stand down, the explosives weren't collected. We still get, at the Coltsville Auxiliary Research Team, we get emails often from grandchildren clearing out their their grandfather's garage taking pictures of oh we found this this and this and we're like yeah you need to get the bomb squad there now <laughs> yeah I've, I've been there andrew i was giving a talk down in grimsby about the butterfly bomb one of the most heinous weapons used during the second world war 
because it was used for the first time as a cluster bomb, which yeah. would explode on impact or with time delay or sometimes even if it was touched, depending on the fuse. And it was dropped, 3,000 of them were dropped on Grimsby during the Second World War. And I gave this talk there, and it was, at that time, it was about the 70th anniversary, and so you had lots of people who had lived through the attack who could attend the talk. And we had about 100 people in the room between the ages of 9 years old and 99. And um, these uh, these people who had lived in Grimsby all their life started bringing up these plastic bags to me, uh, with which they described, oh, I've got a bit of the bomb. I was like, oh, 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 dear. Oh, dear. And... Um, yeah, a couple of colleagues of mine over up, up the road in the museum had had some issues previously where someone had bought a live bomb in and the receptionist had taken it because it was a Friday afternoon and the archivist comes in on the Monday and they're told that there's, oh, someone's bought in a donation and there's just one of these anti-disturbance cluster bombs in the drawer. I think it was Immingham Museum up in the northeast of England and uh, bomb disposal were bought in then. So the message, Andrew, is if anyone finds any remnants of the Second World War, just please call the police, call bomb disposal. Uh, especially yellow milk bottles. Phosphorus bombs were usually kept in. So to see a group of milk bottles buried in the ground and it's a bit of a yellowy tinge to them, scarper and call the police quick. Oh, wow. That's actually a good tip. I yeah. didn't know that. <laughs> okay, so we've got that out of the way. Now take us through to operations itself. Yeah, so... As it stood under HDS, the process of gathering information and passing it on and getting it to someone in authority was slow because there was no wireless sets involved. So the military, the first thing they had to do was introduce wireless sets and it kind of goes to the level of ingenuity involved. They built their own wireless set called a TRD and they started handing it out mainly to those key men that they'd previously recruited. Also, the recruitment went into overdrive, so they were pushing northwards up the east coast in again very similar counties to where the auxiliary units were, were operating because this is as i said an anti-invasion force and the people they were recruiting were not i'd say almost the opposite of what they're recruiting for the auxiliary units so these were elderly people these were mothers with prams these were teenagers these were gps doctors vets anyone who wouldn't catch the attention of the german army passing through a town and village and their role as observers and they were really highly trained in this to recognize German formations, recognize insignia, to recognize weapons, quickly count numbers to get direction of travel. What vehicles did they have? What planes are they seeing overhead? Where are people stopping? Where are the ammo dumps? Where are, where are the lagers? And they would then pass this information on, on a piece of edible paper, which by all accounts is pretty grim, written in really simple code, nothing too complicated, and left at dead letter drops. So dead letter drops range from anything from a an oxo cute tin just left on a windowsill, right through to something like there's a gate in Norfolk where there's a horseshoe. If the horseshoe is facing up, there's no message. If it's facing down, there is a message. And the message is secreted in a fake gate bolt, which you pull out and the message inside there. There's a, an amazing lady called Joyce Harrison, who was a, uh, a runner in, well, special duties branch as a runner in, in Essex. She's 105 now. I'm speaking to her in, in Canada. And her dead letter drop was a fake tree stump with a swivel top. She put the message in a split tennis ball, rolled it into the tree stump, and then rolled down the hill to the next dead letter drop. So each cell had five or six observers, maybe, and then there were up to kind of 20 runners per cell. They'd be taking this message from dead letter drop to dead letter drop, and they would end up with a civilian wireless operator. So as I said, the civilian wireless operators were usually the key men that had been kind of identified. So it's those... And their wireless sets were then associated with their job. So we've got examples of vicars with wireless sets in their pulpits or in the altar with the aerial going up the tower. 
We've got publicans with wireless sets in the region of their pubs. We've got a chicken farmer who had one in a disguised chicken hut. You walk in the hut, looks like a normal chicken hut. You go to the end, put your finger in the knot uh, in the wood. That releases a fake door. You push it back, go in. That's where the wireless set is. And the last runner in his line would place the message under a plowshare, which he could get to through a loose floorboard. So you reach out, pick it out, and then send the message on. There's an amazing example of a wireless set, wireless bunker on the Devon-Dorset border, which is under a outside privy. So you go to the privy, open the door, looks like an ordinary outside privy. You go back outside, there's like a water meter metal on the floor, like a little hatch. You open that up and there's a latch inside. You turn the latch 90 degrees, you walk back into the privy. You've released the mechanism, allows you to pull the whole of the toilet system up. And then under the toilet system, there's a ladder going down into a chamber. You go down the ladder into this bunker. And even then, it looks like a weird and for some reason disguised Anderson shelter until you pull a, a hook on a shelf and that opens up a false wall where suddenly that's where your wireless set is. And the last runner in the line that was delivering to that civilian wireless operator, there was a hedge outside of the house. And again, there was a tree stump in there with a swivel top tennis ball, lit tennis ball with a message at put it down. And it would roll all the way down into the bunker and land alongside where he would be operating his, his wireless set. So this sped up this information gathering. So actually the information would be getting to those responsible for making decisions in a timely manner, allowing them to make informed decisions, as you say, about where can we place our counterattacking troops? Which direction are the Germans going? How many are of them? And in complete contrast to the Blitzkrieg in, in the Low Countries in France, where, and quite understandably, the civilians were fleeing on the roads. No one knew where the Germans were coming. They were just kind of appearing. This way was to take away the mystery of that kind of Blitzkrieg and, and, and to allow us to make informed decisions. This is absolutely ingenious, I, Andrew. I, you're going through, you're whittling through all of these, listing them off, because you've obviously been studying this for years. But for me, the first time I'm hearing this, this is fantastic. I mean, you can tell where all of the spy films get their ideas from, but I've got to know. Were these people devising these contraptions, these concepts themselves, or was there like a, a Bible of how to hide your wireless hub? That's a really good question. The bunker under the toilet, for example, was built by the Royal Engineers, who were, who were also responsible for building the operational bases of the auxiliary units. But others were quite ingenious. So yeah, the chicken shed was his own invention. And it kind of talks to the caliber of person that they were recruiting that this was the case. They also had a group of signal men recruited into the Special Duties branch, again, all signing the Official Secrets Act. These are the guys that designed the, the radio set, the wireless set. And they would go around the country kind of checking batteries and checking aerials, but also helping kind of situate them as well. So uh, a kind of mixture of the two. But yeah, and I kind of forget that, it, <laughs> that the level of ingenuity is absolutely incredible. All this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I'll be asking who really were the Vikings? How did they become so successful in spreading across Northern Europe and beyond from the late 8th to the 11th centuries? What are the stories we tell about them and what legacy did they leave behind for us today? I'm Dr Kat Jarman and throughout September I'll be examining the big questions about the Vikings with a host of experts and answering all of your burning questions about the Viking Age as well. So, for everything you always wanted to know about the Vikings, subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And let's be completely honest, I mean, this is a case of whether or not you live or die if there's an invasion. If you don't hide this well enough and you're easily found out, then you're done for. Yeah, correct. And as I said, this isn't the French resistance, this isn't kind of SOE operatives who are able to move their wireless sets every now and then to try and avoid discovery. You're in a very set location and eventually you will be, you will be found by the Germans. And, you know, it's definitely a suicide mission. In fact, the, the chap with the chicken shed and they get this kind of points to the level of secrecy that surrounds these guys that he was walking down to the wireless set in the chicken shed one day and a, uh, a soldier from the Royal Corps of Signals was there with a big kind of fish pole aerial on his back. And he asked whether we could help him and, and this Royal Corps of Signals chap said basically they've been kind of detecting weird signals and they come to the understandable conclusion that it was a German spy messaging back to Berlin and the farmer's like, okay, well, I'll, you know, trust me, I'll uh, keep an eye out for any suspicious looking characters the Royal Corps of Signals chap kind of disappeared and obviously was put off the set by someone higher up. But yeah, very easily found. There's another good example in Lincolnshire of a guy, his radio, his wireless set was a, was a very basic one, just buried in the ground really. And he was practicing in the middle of the woods where it was and a, an RAF pilot and his WAF girlfriend were strolling through the woods and uh, they caught him. So immediately ran away, phoned the police. He was taken away to prison, managed to hide the wireless set and wasn't released until the authorities had confirmed his uh, identification and someone had said, actually, you need, to, you need to let him go now. So, yeah, absolutely. Really, really easily found and, and very, very vulnerable. Equally, each runner in the line taking these messages from dead letter drop to dead letter drop didn't know who the other runner was, had no idea. So, you know, even if one of these runners was taken out of the line, that then halts the whole of that cell because there's a person missing from the system. Equally, if you're caught 
taking down notes about an invading army going through your town and village or immediately taken away. It doesn't matter if you're elderly or a mother or whatever. So, yeah, if they, it would have been brutal if they'd been caught. It sounds like quite a fragile system, Andrew. Would it have held? Do we have any indication that it would have actually worked in practice? Or or would people simply have just fled their homes and, and tried to run away from the incoming invasion? Well, I think that the type of people that they were recruiting, they would hope would mean that they would stay and do their duty. But you're absolutely right. It is, a, it is a fragile system. And actually, you know, there's no information analysis at this point. It's just simply passing the information on. And I suspect it's fragile for two reasons. One, because of the level of secrecy that, that, that was demanded of them, that they couldn't know who was who and, and who else was in, in the line. But equally, because they were just there for two or three weeks, that's all they were expected to do. There wasn't any expectation that they were going to be there for any longer period of time. This is very much a very short, sharp period where they're trying to gather as much information as they could about that kind of spearhead bursting through. So it's almost if they were a, a useful, but ultimately disposable group of people. That's the word, isn't it? Yeah, dis- yeah. disposable. But, you know, they weren't ever put to the test, at least not from a full-scale German invasion. Do we know if they provided any contribution to the war effort, if there were any spies that were nabbed, or if they were repurposed towards the end of the war, much like lots of the auxiliaries who ended up joining in with the, the SAS and using the skills they had learned to push towards that final victory? Did the same happen in this particular case with the Special Duties branch? Yeah, really good question. I'm just going to talk about the ATS girls and I'll lead on to how that kind of links into what they provided for the wider war effort. So the civilian wireless operators were sending all this information on. They weren't sure who it was going to, but actually it was going to ATS girls in secret bunkers, very much like the auxiliary units were in. So disguised hatch, ladder down. They're called in-stations, these bunkers. The in-stations tend to have three chambers and a storage. Then there was bunks and the wireless sets. And then there was a third chamber with the batteries and the generator and an escape tunnel. And when the Germans entered these areas, the ATS girls were to go down their bunker, close the hatch, remove the ladder, and they were to stay there for the duration until, one, they were relieved by British forces, or two, they were discovered by the Germans, in which case they were told to burn everything, destroy the radios, and essentially kill themselves. They were given cyanide pills to kill themselves. They were down there. They would receive the message from the civilian wireless operator. They would then pass that on to GHQ or local commands. Again, giving them that information quickly, timely, allowing them to make informed decisions. I see. And just for those to clarify, the ATS were the Auxiliary Territorial Service, which were the women's branch of the British Army on home service, and in some cases abroad during the Second World War. That's correct, yeah. And the head of recruitment for this special duties branch, ATS, was a lady called Beatrice Temple, who was the niece of the Archbishop of Canterbury. And the first interview for these ATS women to come to was held on the fourth floor in the public lounge of Harrods where they would just chat because it was all voice operated. None of this is in code. None of this is Morse code. She wanted to hear the clarity of their voice. But these women were so specifically trained in the ATS. Actually, when it came to stand down in July 44, they couldn't get any other roles. They were just kind of let go. However, you asked a question about 20 minutes ago about the wider war effort and what they actually contributed. And actually, there's one area which we know they contributed to and one kind of rumor that kind of continues to raise its head every now and then. The kind of recognized contribution was included in their stand down letter, which was sent to the key men of the special duties branch. And within it, the head of GHQ Home Forces at the time mentions quite blase about how essentially during the run up to D Day, during Operation Overlord, 
The special duties branch spies and wireless operators played a key role in ensuring that the Germans didn't find out about it. And it points to these very highly trained observers and spies spying on their own population. So going to the pub, seeing if anyone's talking about any kind of invasion, if anyone's mentioned specifics, if the soldiers who are off base are talking about it, if there's airmen talking about objectives, anything like that would be reported back so they could plug the leak. Because if these guys could hear it, any German spies, there weren't any. If there were any German spies, they would be hearing this too. So they played a really important role in showing that there were no leaks. And if there were leaks, they were quickly plugged. The other role that is reported, I haven't been able to find any actual proof really, is that they were part of Operation Fortitude North and South. And as part of that, so Operation Fortitude, as you know, was the deception campaign surrounding D-Day. And there was Operation Fortitude South and Fortitude North. And in both cases, there were false army groups set up to give the Germans the impression that there was an invasion force under Patton in Fortitude South coming across to invade those across the shortest route to Pas-de-Calais. And Fortitude North was that there was a threat from Scotland across to Norway. And in both yes, cases, and this was all the blow-up tanks, right? That's it. Blow-up tanks, Patton going around, photograph them. But also, as part of both Fortitude operations, they sent around a large amount of wireless traffic to indicate that there was lots of soldiers in that area, to indicate that there were lots of preparations, lots of training happening. And there's rumours that the Special Duties branch wireless operators, civilian wireless operators, were given new wireless sets, WS-17s they were called, which were known to be fairly easily traced by Germans across the channel. And they were told to send out basically gobbledygook 24 hours a day, just keep piling it on, piling on lots and lots and lots of noise, both in Scotland and in South of England. So there's rumours that they contributed in that way as well. Um, it kind of makes sense. And there certainly does seem to have been a, a large delivery of WS-17s, but it doesn't seem to fit into the Fortitude campaign where they're very aware that the Germans will be looking out for deception as well. And if you're just sending out gobbledygook, it kind of, kind of confirms that. But that's certainly the rumour. And it makes sense. If you've got all these really highly trained civilian wireless operators, then you must as well utilise it. Yeah, well, you've convinced me, Andrew. <laughs> but if anyone out there wants to come on the podcast and tell us why we're wrong, then we're very, very keen to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, actually, I want to touch on one other part of this story. And we can touch on it briefly, but I need to hear a bit more about it. And this is right. So we understand that the special duties branch are all about relaying information and being these observers, these spies in the case of an invasion to relay this back to the trained professional military to help them regroup and attack. But what happens if all is lost, Andrew? The army has been defeated. The entire military is on its last legs. The government has moved to Canada. What do we do then? Yeah, and this is where it gets really interesting because, and this has only come out in the last five to 10 years. So as the Coastal Auxiliary Research Team, we know exactly where all the auxiliary unit patrols are. They tend to be in coastal counties, with the exception of Herefordshire and Worcestershire. They tend to be five to 10 miles inland, and that is it. But throughout the existence of CART, we get emails and letters from relatives of people who are saying, my father, grandfather, grandmother was definitely in the auxiliary units because they uh, trained in this. They told us about secret bunker. She did unarmed combat. One, we know there were no women involved in the auxiliary units. And two, these people were contacting us from Leicestershire, from Nottinghamshire, from Liverpool, from places where we absolutely know for certain there were no auxiliary units. Uh, we weren't dismissive, but we were kind of raised a, a, an eyebrow. Now, what is going on here? 
2010, the official history of MI6 was released. In that book, there's a, not more than a few lines about a group called Section 7. It's not referenced. We don't know where he's got it from, but as the official history, you can take it as, as family. Section 7 was SIS, MI6, and it was there as a post-occupation resistance force. People talk about the auxiliary units as the British resistance. They're not. They're an anti-invasion force. Section 7 are the British resistance. These guys would only come into action after the military defeat in their area. Again, it seems like there are multiple roles for civilians. We have no idea in terms of numbers, but potentially we know, for example, that they did a trial in the southern counties, six counties, and then it was expanded to the rest of the country. And this says potentially we're talking thousands and thousands of civilians who have gone to the grave without telling anyone about what they were doing. They all signed the Official Secrets Act, and their role was to, in the event of a German occupation, one, uh, they were training people to be saboteurs, to blow up factories, to blow up, very much like the auxiliaries during the invasion period, blow up fuel dumps, to blow up things that were going to be of use to the Germans, railway lines, much like the French resistance under occupation. But obviously this was pre-organised. Two, uh, they were issued wireless sets, and these wireless sets, you could move them. So there's an example, and hardly anyone's come forward about this. We know of a chap called Peter Atwater, who was in Derbyshire, and he was a observer spy wireless operator. The radio set was in the back of a draper's shop with two wireless female wireless operators. There was a grenade under the table, pinned to the table, so you could pull the pin out and get out as the Germans came in, but you could move the wireless set. So this is all about much longer-term resistance for resisting as long as you can. The really interesting thing about this group of people, is, and we know relatively little, is that they recruited, one, women into combat roles. They were seemingly training women to use garrots, to use rifles, to use unarmed combat. There's a fantastic example of a, a woman got in touch with us about her mother who lived in Yorkshire. And right near her death, her mother admitted that she was in this cell, mainly made up of family members. They weren't to be active until occupation. And suddenly it all started to make a bit more sense. She remembers, the daughter remembers very specifically in the 1950s, a pots and pan salesman coming to their door, quite aggressive in his patter. When her mother tried to close the door, he put his foot in the door. And the next thing her daughter remembers is this pots and pan salesman sailing through the air with pots and pans clanging all over the garden. She's formed, she's done some kind of unarmed combat move on him. He's got up and scarpered. And this is, as she's saying, you, you know, my mother was the quietest, gentlest soul. There's no, you know, there's no way she, she'd know this. And it all starts to make sense. And, you know, she was on her deathbed. She was talking about how she was trained to use the garrot, that they were going to be blowing up railways and things like that. So they were training women. They were also training teenage boys to become snipers, to become assassins. And it's really interesting. So a lot of the sources we get for Section 7, apart from a couple of instances, are secondhand. And what I've done is it's been really interesting getting letters and emails from, from relatives because suddenly you can see, even though it's second source information, you can see lines of regularity. So, for example, three or four families contacted me saying their granddad told them that as a kind of 14-year-old, a lot of them were at ARP messengers, so they could use that as cover. A lot of them were in the ATC. Then their grandfathers would tell them that they were taught to use sniper rifles. And three families, one from Liverpool, one from Sheffield, and someone from slightly further south for England, all used exactly the same phrase that their granddad used. They were taught by terrifying ex-NCOs in uniform, but without any insignia. So it sounds like SIS recruited ex First World War snipers to teach young boys how to use rifles. 
again, stashes of weapons and explosives left around towns throughout the country. And we know virtually nothing about this. As I said, there's a few lines in the official history of MI6. What we've managed to gather over time from secondhand sources, Malcolm Atkin and another historian called Austin Ruddy have done some great work on this, but it's just starting to come to the surface now. And often we speak to people and they're like, oh yeah, Grandin's going on about playing with explosives or whatever, and kind of they've dismissed it. It's starting to sound like that this stuff might be much, much wider than we ever thought before. And yeah, these guys are post-occupation. Again, we don't know what success looks like for these guys. Auxiliary units were there for two weeks. They knew it was a suicide mission. Special Juicy's branch knew it was two or three weeks max. What does success look like for Section 7? Because even if the country split between an occupied zone and a non-occupied zone, coming from the states, is a, you know, even if the states got involved in the war, if we'd been militarily defeated, there's no platform for them to invade. You know? So they've just got to hang on in there for as long as possible. French resistance always had hope for as long as UK was not invaded. It's a very different case in, in there. So yeah, the Section 7 is an absolutely fascinating, again, ruthless, brutal side to Britain's defence mechanism. And to go full circle, this isn't Dad's army. This isn't old men. This is highly organised. This is ruthless. They were prepared to carry out their objectives to the utter death. And it's, um, you know, I say it a lot, but we shouldn't have pride in bumbling mediocrity that narrative has built up over since the end of the war. We should have pride in the fact that, that we were highly organised, that we were going to be utterly ruthless and had been extraordinarily well prepared, actually, for a German invasion. And not just that, Andrew. I mean, when we think of the Second World War, you know, we call it a total war, but we focus on those key battles, that driving forward, the D-Days and, and, and onwards through the Normandy campaign and, you know, perhaps we cast an eye to the Pacific or wherever else in the world, those frontline soldiers. But this truly was a total war. And in so many cases, so many wars are. We just need to cast our eyes to what is going on in Ukraine at the moment. And we can see that war has an impact on all levels of society, whether or not you like it or not. And it mobilises all levels of society. And when we hear history like yours, it makes us wonder who wasn't part of the war effort in the UK. Because although they might not have admitted it because they've signed these official secret acts, well, it just sounds like everyone in some way, had some role to play. So you've got to tell us, Andrew, where can we learn more about the work that you're doing? Where can we read more about it? And also, I have to say, if anyone knows anything more about Section 7, if you were in Section 7, if your family members have said anything about this, we need to hear more. And you can contact us on warfare at historyhit.com and we will pass it straight over to Andrew. So Andrew, where can we learn more? Yeah, so a good place to start is our Colton Auxiliary Research website, which is staybehinds.com. On there, we have as much as we know about the auxiliary units and the special duties branch. We've got all the patrols listed, as much as we know in terms of the cells and the equipment and bunkers and lots of really exciting stuff. There's a couple of, as I said, Austin Ruddy's done some great work in the Midlands on a bit of Section 7 stuff and like Home Guard guerrillas and things like that. Malcolm Atkins done some good work. But I would have to say that if you're going to buy a book this year on this stuff, my book, <laughs> Britain's Secret Defences, is out. In it, I'll cover the auxiliary units, special duties branch, some of the secret aspects of the Home Guard, all this Section 7 stuff, industrial saboteurs, all the stuff that we, you know, up until fairly recently, one, we had no idea about, and two, just contradicts our, that narrative that's been going since the end of the war. So, yeah, I loved writing it. It was absolutely brilliant. I've got as many first-hand accounts as I can in there. So some absolutely incredible stories. 
Well, it is amazing to hear that there are new histories coming out all the time about the Second World War. Just when we think we've heard it all, there are just these revelatory stories. And we'll make sure we put a link to your book in our show notes. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. But before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.